0: and you know, shame and guilt are, the mo- are some of the most appalling emotions to impose on somebody from a mental wellness perspective because you know they make you question yourself they make you you know your self-esteem drops because you feel there's something wrong with you
1: hello and welcome to this week's episode of the burnt chef journal a hospitality specific mm-hmm. podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma And conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. My guest this week is Emily Hamilton, who is the Vice President of Strategic Change for RS Groups. They are an electric components company who also provide PPE for the hospitality sector. I first met Emily at the This Can Happen Awards this year in London where she won the Founders Choice Award for Outstanding Service to Mental Health. Emily is an incredible human being and she is a passionate advocate for the trans community. She's played a leading role within her global company to create and drive a supportive, caring, and safe environment for trans employees. I was really interested to talk to Emily and expand my knowledge when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community. Emily did a great job of opening my eyes and also providing some really interesting insights into what it may be like to, to live life as a trans woman or trans man. And I thank her for that. It's a subject we need to take more time to understand, more time to look at addressing within our workplaces and our work environments. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and let's get started after a short word from our sponsors. The Burnt Chef Project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston, a leading provider of innovative, high quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes wedges and mash to find out more head to lambwestern.eu or search your partner in potatoes i appreciate you taking the time out to speak to me today i was there whilst you won your award at uh this can happen conference
0: oh okay
1: yeah so i got to hear uh, all about the impressive work that you've been doing and i uh, reached out to Zoe very very recently and said look we need more inspiring individuals on the podcast to try and help increase the rate of change in education within the hospitality sector. And she didn't hesitate to put your name forward first, and just was like, "That university, Emily." Bless her. How's life been since winning that award? Have you seen much of a uh, much of a change in terms of doors
0: opening? No, not especially. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's been a pretty rubbish summer, to be honest. I mean, just the the whole being trans in the UK thing is just shocking at the moment so um yeah it's been nice and and you know i guess does it has it opened doors for me possibly one never knows no, no you're the first person to say i saw you at the awards and and wanted somebody to talk to so yeah okay it's opened this door so that's that's important
1: yeah i personally like i was saying to zoe about this for the first time we're agents of change right in our respective fields you know we're doing whatever we can do to try and fight against yeah hundreds of years of society or whatever it might be and to try and create enough energy and forward momentum and this can happen i think was the first opportunity where i felt like that fight didn't exist you know what i mean that resistance to change wasn't there because you were there with forward-thinking individuals and i finally yeah. felt And i said it a couple of times to someone i was with i was like i belong here like this yeah. feels inclusive right
0: I mean, it's an amazing organization. I'm very lucky to have been a part of it. It's, uh, I think it's the levels of energy are the crucial thing. that you know everyone is energized in doing the right thing and and recognizing how much it takes to do the right thing. And I think that's the important thing. I think you know sometimes we, for those of us working in, in the sort of mental health space, people forget that we're usually there because we've had to deal with it. We've, you know we've been through the ringer and as much as we talk about coming out of the other side you're never out the other side you know those things don't go away you're better at identifying them you're better at identifying them early so you can face them up and deal with them But you still deal with them and being in a room with people who get that and understand that i think that's the thing that probably gives me the most energy so yeah Mm.
1: it's that shared empathy isn't it like and it's not like a case of, oh, you've had mental illness. I feel really sorry for you type thing. That sympathy that we say so frequently, but it is a case of like going, yeah, do you know what? You, you've been to the pits and back. You understand the fragility of mental health, but also the strength that deeper understanding of yourself can hold as well, right? That's, that's pretty special.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I'm a million times stronger than I was before. It doesn't mean I'm out of the woods, but, it, you know, the... the to be able to look back at those awful times and the worst times, you know, I guess it gives you a sense of perspective, but, you know, without being trite and flippant about it, you know, it's it, it, these are struggles, you know, to say it's been a rubbish summer, but I'm still here. I'm not dwelling in the place I've dwelt in, you know, times in my life. And, you know, I'm still here to be able to be a friend and, and to listen and to just talk to people, you know, talking is so important. Um, so yeah, for that, you know, it's I wish there was an easier road to get to enlightenment, I guess, but yeah, you know. You don't get to choose the road sometimes. No, and and that's an under that's a huge understatement, isn't it? Like
1: if only we could go back in time and go just provide someone with that little red pill that goes, Here we go, here are some of the key nuggets of information that you'll need in order to make your life a little bit easier or or you know, to be able to recover quickly from
0: its knockbacks, but that's why we do what we do, and that's what that's effectively what we're trying to do, isn't it? Is you know, you can't tell somebody how to recover. You can tell people how you did it. You can tell people what you saw. You can give people your experience. You know, it's it's like there was that that old thing. I don't know if you ever were a West Wing watcher. I was an avid West Wing watcher, but. Uh, Leo has a, a thing in it where he talks about, you know, a guy's fallen down a hole and uh, he sees somebody walking past, he says, you know, hey, can you help? And the guy sort of shouts down and says, yeah, I hope you do better, buddy, and sort of walks on. And the next person walks past. passing, yeah, can you help me? And he says, well, I can't reach you, so sorry. And then another friend walks past and he jumps in the hole with him. He says, what have you done, you idiot? Now we're both in the hole. And the guy says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. So... It is that thing sometimes you, you've just got to get in the dirt you've got to jump in you've got to be there and I always think that's that's really important it's just being present actually for a lot of people at that time of crisis just having somebody who's present and you know, that's what saved me was somebody who was just there mm. just yeah. bringing you back to the light you know that that sense of you know I, I talk talk about my sort of suicide attempts quite a lot you know for me the way I describe it, it's like that sense of black cotton wool enveloping you and the inability to see anything and people say oh reach out when you're feeling that way it's like you can't you're just not capable you somebody's got to reach in somebody's got to tear that cotton wool apart and let the light in and that's you know it's just so important to talk about that
1: definitely and we'll cover that during some of this episode <laughs> i think because i mean i've been incredibly excited to speak to you because i whilst i have friends in the lgbtq plus community and even family members as well you know then i'm still interested to learn more i'm still very curious about this space and and i think that in today's society we're almost paralyzed now by being able to ask any questions because we fear that our not even naivety but our lack of understanding means that if we ask questions then we're going to be seen as bigoted or we're going to be seen in, in the wrong light and i'm quite curious to open up conversations yeah. and to be able to provide some information to people that actually then makes us less of a a daunting subject and it helps improve all-inclusivity really so I mean I guess as a, as a really quick introduction I mean I know we've been recording for a little while already and I feel that conversation is going to flow quite naturally but for our audience here obviously Emily has joined me and uh, she is a vice president of strategic change for electro components
0: PLC so RS components group or RS group now we've just had a rebrand so
1: RS group RS group. So that's obviously not within the hospitality sector, but there's a lot of things that you're you're challenging, a lot of things that you're working with other businesses on that actually helps to create a sustainable change. But you're an incredible advocate for the trans community, obviously playing leading roles within a global company, but also working with other organizations as well. So I mean, I guess as an introduction and for me to try and still your thunder in any way, shape or form, Emily, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, how you became an advocate for not just the trans community, but also the LGBTQ plus community as well?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I came out, so simple story. I came out three years ago as trans, uh, having known I was trans from the age of about six. So I was uh, deeply in the closet for 36 years, so I was 43 when I came out. And I think, you know, for me, that had a massive intersection with mental health and mental wellness, uh, years and years of deep depression, you know, using the word depression for the first time at the age of 11. You know, that's uh, imprinted on my mind, suicidal ideation to suicide attempt. I saw the massive intersection between the stigmas faced by the trans community and the LGBT community in more general sense and I'm motivated by not wanting anyone to feel the way I felt and going to the depths that I went to and having to deal with the things I had to deal with and really you know visibility is key and and visibility is the light and one of the big challenges for me as a trans woman was that I just didn't have visible role models growing up you know through the the 80s 90s you know trans was seen as something which was a fetish it was seen as something which was odd peculiar for comedy purposes and none of that made any sense to me because it didn't feel funny that I was a a girl with effectively the wrong sort of biological traits or outward biological traits it was quite serious and it certainly wasn't you know a sexual thing it was just me being me you know it was a I you know I'm just Emily and You know, I remember the words I used when I was 11. I I can't understand what's going on with my body. I just couldn't fathom it. So I think talking about it and being vocal and being open and visible and all of those things, if that means that younger people or even older people who've been in that closet can see that you can have a life, you can live a life, you can add value to society, then that's got to be a good thing. Because, you know, if you legally ban trans people tomorrow, a trans person will be born tomorrow. You know, we've been here since there have been people and we'll always be here. So, you know, we got to start to learn how to live together and really cut out these culture wars. So, you know, I'm just playing my part in in saying, yeah, we're just people, we're human beings, just like anyone else.
1: Yeah, that must be, I mean, I I know as an instigator for change, it must be tough, especially in... I mean, we are in a rapidly growing culture, like diversity and inclusion is a big subject matter, even for businesses who are just doing it on the face of things. You know, there are ultimately individuals within those organizations who who are really rallying a cause and and driving that change. But I think one of the things that we've experienced personally within businesses is just the lack of understanding and almost that blinkered approach to it. So... I mean, for anyone who's listening to this, I mean, what was it at what stage when you were, you say, 11 or 6 was when you first sort of six, realized? 6,
0: 6, yeah, 6 when I first realized, 11 when I articulated it properly for the first time. How did you come to that conclusion? What was it that, what
1: sort of catalysts was it that, that led you to to suddenly establish yeah. that?
0: I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's one a lot of people sort of shy away from. How, how do you know you're trans? How do you prove you're trans? I mean, it's... It's, it's like anything else. Like, how do you prove you're not trans? How do you how do you prove you're straight and not gay? You know, it's it's who you are. I mean, certainly when I was six, there was no vocabulary to to describe it. Uh, you know, other than I knew I was different. I knew I gravitated towards the girls more than the boys. I knew I, I just didn't. It just didn't resonate for me when people expected me to behave like a boy. You know, and all the things that meant. And we're talking we're talking early eighties here. You know, so you've got to like football. You've got to like rough and tumble. You've got, you know, I didn't like all of that stuff. And I know sort of very strong memories at uh, at primary school sort of coming in after Top of the Pops had been on on the Thursday night. Um, For your younger listeners, that was a music show where we got to see what was in the charts once a week with some quite questionable now presenters uh, running it. But I can remember going into school and the girls every Friday would try and recreate the dances they'd heard or seen on the on Top of the Pops the night before. And I can remember wanting to join in because I was, and still am, absolutely obsessed with Madonna, not just obsessed with her, but wanting to be her. That was my thing when I was a kid, and there was probably a big clue in that. And wanting to join in and being told, you know, to go away. They didn't want a boy joining in with them. And, you know, I, I really couldn't pass at that time why they didn't see me as one of them, why I wasn't invited into that area. And, you know, as I grew up, I mean, got to the age of 11 and, and you know, dipping through one of my favorite publications at that age, which was the Penguin Medical Encyclopedia, which was my go-to book for trying to get a day off school. So I would look for something with symptoms I could replicate by pouring a tin of soup down the toilet or something like that and saying I've been ill, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But actually genuinely looking through and, and and wondering why I felt the way I felt. And I found the word depression and I knew that was a problem. I knew I was Withdrawing, finding it really difficult to make friends and and build friendship groups, and I was starting puberty. I was going through it, and I was I just couldn't understand why my body wasn't doing what I thought it should be doing. You know, the things that were happening to girls in puberty were not happening to me. You know, let's address the elephant in the room. You know, I, the genitals were wrong. I couldn't work out why that was the situation. I was quite a bright child, as one of those unfortunate people to be labeled with the term gifted, you know, when I was younger. And there was nothing, it was section 28 days, it was illegal for schools to tell us about LGBT people. So there was nothing for me to look at. And, you know, at that stage, late 80s, you know, homophobia was a very serious thing. Being called queer as you were getting a beating was pretty usual, uh, whether you were out or not. It was just very, very obvious to me that I was not a boy. I had a paper round, so I'd seen, you know, in the newspapers, the usual salacious, you know, sex change, bus conductor in rumpy, pumpy escapades, you know, that sort of stuff. And I thought, well, that's kind of me, but, you know, without the, you know, without the salacious part of it, but, you know, what do I do about this? Where do I go with this? And, you know, I ended up, my my parents took me saying to them, I was depressed seriously enough to take me to a psychologist, a private psychologist. And that's the first time he said, well, what's, you know, what's the problem? And I said, I'm a girl and I don't know what's going on. And that was also my first experience of the reaction that that would bring. So the reaction of the psychologist was, I would characterize it as angry, disgusted, told me to pack it in, told me I was too big for that nonsense, what was really wrong, and caused a panic that I've known many times since that, you know, he told my parents, I'd lose my home, I'd lose my family. I'd obviously said something very, very wrong. And he effectively slammed the door of the closet back on me at that age and made it so I thought I was carrying a terrible, shameful secret. So, you know, how do you know you're trans? Well, you just know it's a key, you know, there are lots of things which are a part of your identity, you know, your sexuality, you know, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes. These are things you're born with. And, you know, so somebody says to me, well, how do you prove you're trans? I say, well, how do you prove you're not? You know, it's just, you know, this whole ridiculous thing about self-ID. Well, who else can ID it? Who else can, who else can justify it? I don't know why I'm trans. And actually, I'm not all that bothered to find out why. I just am. I'm just me.
1: I love that. Thank you for sharing that as well, because I appreciate, you know, it's, those elements of perhaps fear and and other things still exist because they're ingrained from us, you know especially with those experiences they're ingrained from a from an early age, so I do appreciate you sharing that, but I think the thing that's hard to quantify for individuals now is is the same when we talk about mental illness and we talk about you know anxiety disorders, and we're trying to explain to a room full of people who have never really been in that position where their body has just gone fully autonomous. You've got no say on how your behavioural, your physiological responses are reacting to even what to most people would seem like a completely trivial stimuli. And trying to get them to explain that or get them to understand that actually what's going on is very real and it's true. And it's that's their reality and that's that's life and that's what's going on currently is very tricky because unless people have experienced that profound feeling of hold on a second, I am a particular gender or i have a particular sexual orientation or i am experiencing you know even for me i had a personality disorder and i wasn't able to i was constantly having to self-regulate my emotions and self-regulate my behaviors to fit into what i thought was accepted because i got told that the way i was wasn't so i understand perhaps not necessarily with the same experiences but how do you i guess what i'm trying to get to is how do you get individuals to understand who have never had to question it because what they have is is perfectly fitting for them
0: well i guess you have to take away that comfort factor in somebody's mind so we're all comfortable to a certain extent with who we are till somebody tells us we shouldn't be comfortable with it so we talk about disorders we talk about mental disorders for example in lots of cases, they're not they're, they are just who that person is, and the reason they're classified as a disorder is because it's less common and because other people don't know how to deal with it so what I would say to somebody from a and the sort of the mental aspect of being trans and not all trans people go through this is what we call gender dysphoria so dysphoria is the sense of distress at the the mismatch between the sense of self and the outward facing part of who we are so for example I mean your your the people listening here can't see me and which is probably a good thing because we've just discussed that I've got a terrible load of mess behind me <laughs> but they can hear me and and if you're just hearing me you're going to hear the effects of testosterone on my voice which I hate I absolutely despise my voice but it's my voice it's the one I have it's the one I've got to use so I have a lot of dysphoria about that, that my voice doesn't match the voice that's in my head, the voice that it should be, the voice it would have been if I hadn't gone through a testosterone puberty. So the dysphoria factor, how do you explain this to somebody who doesn't have it? Well, if I were to say to you, as, as far as I'm aware, a cisgender person, so cisgender is just the opposite of trans, it's a scientific term, there's no loaded language there, It's just it just means on the same side as... So, a cisgender person, if I say to you tomorrow morning when you woke up, you would have the physical characteristics of somebody of the opposite sex. You will be expected to deport yourself as the opposite sex in every way of your life. You will be treated as somebody of the opposite sex. For most cisgender people, apart from maybe a little frisson of, well, that would be quite interesting for a day to see what that's like, Mm. if you were told that is your future and you will be like that forever that in itself would potentially start to give you a flavor of how that, how distressing that can be for a trans person. If I were to say to you that I am also going to give you cross-sex hormones, I'm going to suppress your natural sex hormones, if I would then say that you need to go on and have surgeries, because that's always been the case that people assume you have to have this, you have to have that to be trans. But if those were forced on you, changing your body, changing your a way of seeing the world, changing your emotional state, you would feel a great deal of distress. Well, that's our default. Our default is that we've got all of those things by nature, and it causes us distress. So, all of the things which would be horrific to a cisgender person, HRT, surgeries, and so on and so forth, for us are the, are a life-saving cure, and they are literally life-saving because they enable us to live as the people we are. What's between your ears is a great deal more important than what's between your legs when it comes to your identity. And the sooner people can start to understand that and understand that person that you see in front of you is not the shell, not this this sort of meat puppet that's wandering around with them. It's what's behind the eyes. And for trans people, you know, there's only one person who lives in there. Mm-hmm. And that's the only person who can be a judge of who they are. And likewise for anyone else, if you say if you want to force somebody into a box, it never goes well. It never goes well because human beings are beautifully variant, you know, sexuality, color, gender identity, expression. You know, that is one of the beautiful things about being human is that variety of people that we have. And the more we celebrate that and we look at those differences in perspective, the differences in expression, the creativity that comes from that, the better. As you try to make people assimilate, it only ever goes badly. Yeah.
1: And we see that of the impacts of our, our mental health, right? We see, and the more, you know, I've been in this sphere now, like, a uh, crikey, I, I carried along mental illness since I was about the age of 16 when I first experienced a severe depression. and didn't really get it professionally seen to until I was in my late 20s, which then started on this journey. But the more that I am around this sphere, the more that you, listen, let's take a step back. So everyone who experienced mental illness is unique. It's unique. It's a unique experience to everyone. There are some similarities, which is where we can start to try and classify what may necessarily been going on. But when you start to hear speak to people about this and you open up conversations, you start to see that the impacts to people's mental health and well-being, yes, can be biologically triggered, you know, through certain things, including things like bipolar and, you know, perhaps change of gender, et cetera. But you start to see more commonly mental illnesses be as a direct result of what's happening in someone's environment or in their life. And I guess to bring this back to the point, this is why we see rates of um, suicide and self-harm so much higher in the LGBTQ plus communities, because they are constantly fighting against how they feel how they feel their authentic you know how you feel your authentic self is versus what society dictates or your environment dictates that you should be and that it's like it's like putting a polar bear into the zoo a polar bear is not going to walk around happily and and hunting for its food it's going to sit there and rock and and stare at the wall and exhibit behaviors you'll never see in in the wild it's because its environment's not conducive to good well-being
0: yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. So what, when I talk about sort of mental health intersection with coming out as trans or or LGBT, for that matter, you go from having a lot of internalized angst because when you're in the closet, you're internalizing all of the shame, the guilt, the fear, the things that are pushed on you, the things that are stopping you from coming out, and you know the amount of mental capacity you're using for that and. Yeah, shame and guilt are, the, are some of the most appalling emotions to impose on somebody from a mental wellness perspective because you know they make you question yourself. They make you, you know, your self esteem drops because you feel there's something wrong with you. What can happen when you come out is you trade that internalized angst for the externalized one—the the abuse, the you know, the constant attacks on on who you are, your identity, the the bigotries we see in the press daily. I mean literally sort of, you know, five, five, six, seven, ten stories a week in the national press at the moment, because we're going through this this backlash, these culture wars. And the mental uh, damage that that does, you know, of seeing yourself portrayed as a predator or seeing yourself portrayed as some sort of sexual deviant monster, when actually I'm a relatively boring vice president in a FTSE 100 company trying to do my day job dealing with all of and this is the other point all of the other crap that people have to deal with so i don't know if i'm allowed to swear mildly on your podcast but i just did it Um, but you know you're dealing with all of the stuff the cost of living crisis the energy costs you're dealing with family issues that happen those things don't just not happen because you're dealing with you compartmentalize well i'm dealing with the hatred i'm getting for being trans you're dealing with a whole lot and you know mental health first aid england have a really helpful sort of thing. They talk about the stress container. And, you know, when you, you intersect with a number of things, you know, I am bisexual, I am trans, you know, so I'm I'm getting all of the stresses from from the external environment that go with those, plus family stuff, plus cost of living, plus my day job stress, you know, plus I've got a gay job as well. You know, I'm a director of trans in the city, so I've got to deal with that. All of these things come into the into the stress container and actually you know, we're no different. Our stress container is about the same size as anyone else's. The question is, as anyone who's familiar with that, is that you have to have the tap to release those stresses. Our ability to turn the tap on and and flow those things through is often very difficult. So, yeah, it's just getting. I guess it's empathy for people to understand quite what the backlash is like, and I think there is a real crossover outside of our community to. So people who do have mental, the, the general population, if you like, with mental health conditions, you talked about anxiety and the physical and the very visible response to that that can be, you know, anxiety attacks or people withdrawing and becoming withdrawn. You know, the level of judgment that goes with those, I think, is very, very similar. I think that that level of you're not part of our society, you're not fit to participate in our society that's going to have exactly the same impact. And it comes from the same root of ignorance as anti-trans, anti-LGBT hate. You don't conform to what somebody says is, I hate the word normal. What? Who wants to be normal anyway? Normal is just a load of rubbish, you know. We are a, a variant species, and actually we need to start to understand people a bit better.
1: Yeah, 100%. I was having a chat with some friends of mine yesterday, and we were talking about the The fact that we're all human beings, right? The subject started on politicians, and and that's a that's a conversation for a a separate day. But I started saying, look, if you're ever curious about what the capability of the human race is as an animal species, just watch David Attenborough programs on chimpanzees or monkeys, and you'll realise that actually, you know, there are a whole wide range of behaviours, both. In terms of sexual orientation, in terms of behavioral. I mean, Christ, in some tribes, monkey tribes, there's cannibalism. You know, there's a whole wide width of different behaviors that this animal, which is very, very close to us in very m- many respects, exhibits in its natural environment. And yet we're trying to pigeonhole everyone into, uh, don't get me wrong, cannibalism is not, uh, not something that I personally agree with. I'm glad we covered that up. Yeah, I yeah, I just had to be sure because, you know, whilst we are promoting as much of an inclusive culture as possible, we have to draw the line somewhere. But yeah, like it's it's just really interesting and in trying to undo that. And I suppose the question is, and I suppose the question that a lot of our audiences will ask is where does it end? Where do we does it continue? Like, because you know, we've got non binary, for example, which is uh, you know, only I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly only within the last 5 or 6 years I've become familiar with it and I'm originally from Canada I think they I first heard
0: yeah, I mean I think I'm always very careful about people who say this is, you know, a new thing or a you know, something which is, you know, a fad and and it's often used against young people, you know, it's just a phase, it was never heard of before. I think the way we describe things starts to become codified. But I mean, again, non-binary people have existed since there have been people. There are people who, you know, just as you probably, and again, I'm making a big assumption, feel absolutely certain of your masculinity, of, of who you are, as I feel absolutely certain of my binary gender, my gender is female, there are people who will feel exactly the same way that they do not fit into those categories. And the reality is there have always been people who are in that place. And, you know, people would have used terms like androgynous. Oh, they dress very androgynously? Or they, you know, it's not clear who who they are. And there were all sorts of pejoratives, you know, using terms like non-binary or in other cases, you know, genderqueers, another uh, expression which is used. These are things that make sense to the person. They make sense to the people concerned. And I don't think we can call them new. I think, you know, they've been around since as long as people are around. It's just we're getting words and definitions which help us to define that. And for me, you know, if we look back at all the words that are used in the trans community, a transsexual was a very medicalized term, old-fashioned term. You know, anyone who's been involved in the NHS knows the NHS coding system, which is a whole degree course in and of itself. The number of codes that trans people have found on their medical records, you know, describing us in ways that don't, we wouldn't describe ourselves. You know, fetishistic, cross-dresser, transvestite, all these sort of words that are used. You know, many of those now absolutely carry a pejorative sense because they were used pejoratively. You know, being trans in and of itself is not a mental illness, but was classified as such until only two years ago in the same way that being gay and lesbian was classified as a mental illness until 1993. So we learn and we develop and we, you know, this is the thing about being human. The reason we are kind of top of the food chain is because, in theory, we have the capacity to learn, to share knowledge, to record knowledge, to improve. And the reason that we may not stay top of the food chain is because we have the unique ability to ignore all of that and fall to our baser instincts and bigotries and fundamentalisms. And, you know, you could get into a whole other thing about, you know, the, the role of religion in, in this factor, you know, religion can be a great force for good. It can, as we can see, also be a great force for evil. And that's a very human, a very human thing. So yeah, you know, terminologies, yes, non-binary people, if you are as capable as I am of saying you are very binary, why would we not believe there are people for whom that is not true? Mm. Is for me, is that simple.
1: If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, wellbeing journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. Yeah, I appreciate you um, clarifying that as well. Apologies for my definition; Mm -hmm. it's an unfamiliar subject for me. In the same way, when I started discussing mental illness, as it was unfamiliar, and you find yourself. Due to lack of knowledge, and I think this is, again, which is what I said at the very beginning, I'm keen to learn more to ensure that I don't repeat the same mistakes of yesterday. And it's the same when we talk about the subject of suicide, and often the word commit comes into this because of the time that there was actual a crime, and and it reinforces that stigma and shame around the subject matter. So I'm always very pleased when I can have an open conversation. You can go, well, actually, non-binary isn't a new Concept. We've just found a vocabulary to be able to try and help those who are feeling in that, or yeah. who are non-binary, put that into some sort of some sort of tangible explanation, as opposed to just feeling, you know, feeling.
0: And no two people in any respect are exactly the same. So you know, I'm trans, but am I the same as every other trans person? Absolutely not. You know, no two non-binary people are exactly the same in terms of how they express themselves, how they see themselves, how they view the world. You know, I'm not non-binary, and and in all honesty, I learn as well from my non-binary friends what that means. And for each one of them, it's a different set of experiences. But I use the word label. that the label of non-binary is the best definition we have because it is a simple one. You do not fit into the gender binary, and why not? Why should you? Who says? You know, gender is a social construct. Who says you should fit into that? There's no, mm. no law for that one. Well, unfortunately, there are lots of laws. But, you know, from a natural law perspective, who who said we should? Who ordained that? Yeah,
1: well, again, as you say, religion, society. And and actually, if you look back in history, a lot of the, you know, sexual orientation, so from a sexual orientation point of view, was existing, you know, different sexual preferences were existing way, way, way back in history. Well,
0: if, you like, you like, if you like Greek vases, then you'll know all about homosexuality in antiquity. I mean, this is a big point. It's a hobby horse I get on quite a lot. You know, there are 70 countries in the world where it's illegal to be me. Uh, It's illegal to be LGBT. There are seven countries where the death penalty is in place for people like me, including Qatar, for those people who enjoy football. And, you know, what's the reason behind that? And the reason behind that is, in some parts, the British Empire, you know, we exported The colonial penal code, which in some cases was retained following the withdrawal from empire, which criminalized same-sex relationships, often in societies which previously had no issue whatsoever with homosexuality or gender nonconformity, and in fact had rich traditions. India is a great example, um, where if you look at sort of uh, temple carvings, you'll see effectively depictions of trans people. There is the caste of the hijra in India. Who are a trans community, but you saw them being criminalised and repressed through the empire period, and the legacy was long. I mean, India only repealed that section of the penal code two years ago again. You know, it's these things have a very long lifespan. And and, you know, as a British person, you know, thankfully half Irish as well, so you're very proud to be Irish. But Britain has a lot to answer for in terms of what it exported around the world in terms of some of the cultural repressions um, that, you know, we now see the repercussions of. So, you know, sorry, I got a bit political there. But, you know, it's an important part, again, from a mental health perspective, I want to have a holiday. The days of me just flicking through a, well, you can't do it really on a brochure anymore, flicking through the internet, looking for a holiday, I've got a whole load of other questions. Is it safe? Is it legal? Can I be me? Can I share a room? Can I, you know, all these things. Am I flying long distance? Do I get off a plane in Dubai to change planes? Because lots of people like to do that. No, I don't, because we have evidence of trans people arrested, deported, and having their passports confiscated. You know, it's there's there's so much you have to think about. And you know, again, from a mental wellness perspective, you know, it's just more crap to deal with that you shouldn't have to. Yeah, I just want to... I just want to get some sunshine and put my feet in warm water. You know.
1: Yeah, and for anyone who you know perhaps is of the opinion that oh this is you know just a choice just a lifestyle choice it's it's a fashion thing like after explaining everything that you have to go through in order just to be able to have the same liberty as anyone else and would take for granted and you, and to just throw that away it's like oh it's just a just a it's just a phase it's just a lifestyle choice you're like no this is you know this is being yeah. this is living right
0: well i wouldn't i, I you know, i will say this i wouldn't choose to be trans because it's Bloody hard, but I'm not ashamed to be trans. And I've come to peace with the fact that that's who I am. It's, I'm like lots of other people. And that's one of the, the you know, the internet's a real double edged sword. It's the source of so much violence, hatred, and bigotry. But it's also enabled me to understand that I am just like a whole load of other people. We have our absolute differences. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't choose to be trans. But I'm not ashamed to be and and I don't think anyone should be ashamed to be because you're just who you are. I love it,
1: that's the same for anything else you know, be yeah. be who you feel you should be, and if you don't know how to get there because that's quite an open ended statement, especially when you're as you say you're wrapped up in that black cotton wall and you just don't you don't know which way is up or down, but try and find your tribe try and find
0: yeah. someone who you can talk to, right who you can just experiment get- Great connections absolutely. you know, I was about to say, find your tribe is exactly that. Find people who understand where you're coming from. Nobody can climb in your head and look out of your eyeballs. That would be really weird. but there are people who, who pretty much get it, and that will be through experience, you know whether people be trans or whether people who've had mental health crisis. You know, we know our tribes. You know, when I talk to people who've been through mental health crisis, the root cause was, in many cases, completely different, completely different triggers that made that happen. But actually, the journey, once you're in there, once you're in the ride, you know, the queue might have been different for the roller coaster, but you're all on the same, you're all in the same carriage screaming at the same time. You've got that reality. And that does become, you know, people who faced into mental health challenges. It is a tribe. It's a tribe of people who, actually I think have got amazing insight and the amount of personal insight you have to have. I mean, people who don't suffer with mental challenges, I sometimes think they do lack that insight. They lack that that introspection that, okay, what's made me how I am? What's made me respond that way? What's, you know, as you say, it could be a chemical imbalance. We know there are chemical imbalances that can cause mental health issues But sometimes it's situational, it's environmental. And actually, we all have, you know, we all have some commonality there. And the key thing is you don't judge. You know, it's, oh, yeah, I know exactly what happened here. And what you need to do is this. You can't do that. The answer is, you know, we were talking before we started, you know, it's the person in the hole is, you know, you get down in the hole and say, look, I've been here before. I know the way out. You know, I this is the way I took. And these are the things that helped me. And they might not help you. They might not be the thing, but actually there's going to be something in there. And frankly, the fact somebody's got in the hole with you and they're talking to you and they are reaching in, you know, that in and of itself helps you to find the way. And it gives you that that level of introspection that I think, again, I wouldn't wish mental crisis on anyone. Absolutely not. But I think once you've gone through it and you've come through the other side, the strength you can draw from that is incredible. And giving that back is something I, I always try to do.
1: Yeah, well said. I think it's an important point just to reiterate, which is often enough, we as a society, we as human beings want to provide the quick and quickest and easiest fix into someone who's struggling. you know, Even if you're not familiar with them, even if you don't know them on a personal level, you want to do what you can do to help fix it. And often enough, that can be, the not the worst, but it can be your best intentions can often lead to an adverse effect. And sometimes it is just about being there, being allowed to be human as well. And allowing yourself to be human and go, I can feel I can feel this means a lot to you. I can feel you're lost right now. And I don't have anything that's gonna fix this immediately. But I am here with you at this moment in time to be or to do anything that you need me to do and to be able to know that you as a human being can shoulder that and that you can ride that wave with that individual who may have been dealing with this for years and you're you're having a small slice to share but that could provide them with enough fuel and forward momentum to create meaningful change and to start their own journey it's yeah never never underestimate just getting in that hole as you say uh brene brown is one who i i know she uh one of the she has a video that we play regularly on our training sessions about you know the difference between sympathy and empathy and being able to take the perspective and the emotions of others and not necessarily yeah. consider them as your own and we've been training teams now for three years and every single session we play that video and every single time and this video is only what a minute two minutes long every time a little paradigm shift just drops into my head, and I catch another bit of this small little video, and I go, "Bloody hell, yeah! I'm still learning. Still, yeah, you know, I never considered that before."
0: Well, it's it's the difference between being committed and being involved, isn't it? You know, a good friend is committed to your well being. That means listening as well as talking, and you know, sometimes people just want to be involved. They want to just throw in a throw in something and move on. And it's, it adds the pressure, you know, that there's an old saying, you know, what's the difference in being committed and involved? Well, you know, for, if you're having a, an English breakfast, you know, the, the, the pig's committed, the chicken's involved, you know, it's, you need to think about actually how deeply you're going to get involved and committed with somebody. And it's going to be tough sometimes, you know, sharing the whole with somebody is tough and it can, you know, it can impact you. That's why counselors have counselors of their own because they're having to deal with that. And I think, you know, for those of us who've been to the dark side, you know, we go in there willingly because we know what it's like and we know what it's like to be in the dark. And, you know, the old saying, you light a candle, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. So, mm. you know, we do that. I'm throwing all the aphorisms in here. <laughs> I, I, I realize that. But, you know, it is, there, there is no answer. There, You know, anyone who tells you the answer to mental illness is this or this it's a nonsense. The answer is multifarious. You have to come at lots of angles. And, you you know, like you said, just being there. Being there is the biggest thing, I think, on the terms of the person who needs it.
1: Yeah. I suppose, never underestimate the cathartic nature of being able to talk through your thoughts and feelings Openly with someone else to get haptic feedback, even if that yeah. feedback is just silence and, and just a knowing look. Like yeah. it, that's probably one of the most isolating things, isn't it? When you've got so much going on inside your head, whether you're, you know, whether you're questioning your gender or your identity or your personality or you're experiencing, mm-hmm. you know, mental or physical health issue, it's all of these unanswered questions that are running through your own head that you don't have any time, or even the energy to be able to find just some feedback because then you're just stuck on that loop and you're stuck
0: constantly yeah or to realize that the questions are irrelevant in the first place and that's a crucial thing is that we do fixate on you know i mentioned it before you know i don't know why i'm trans nobody knows why trans people are there but you know what as soon as you realize it, it doesn't matter why we're trans or why we're gay or you know why we're bi or why we got ginger hair why we got red eyes you know any of those things Once you realize that's irrelevant and not important because you can't do anything about it, you're created as you're created, actually that in itself is an amazing thing. And I think, you know, again, drawing it back to sort of general mental wellness, sometimes the questions that torment us aren't relevant, but you don't know that until you're given space. And like you say, the knowing look, the person who, yeah, you know, what I've spent time, I've chewed this one for years. And you know what? It doesn't matter, because I'm me, and and I'm going to deal with the here and now. I'm going to deal with the, you know, with the cards I've been dealt, and actually taking out some of the noise, some of the static out of that makes a lot of difference. Well said.
1: So, in terms of your sector and and the industry that you operate in, obviously as VP for strategic changes, as well as you know, a whole other, your roles in your life that doesn't define who you are as an individual in terms of just your gender. But what's, to be able to try and perhaps relate this to the hospitality sector, what's the split in terms of um, gender roles? Is it a 50-50 or a 50-20-30,
0: however? It's an interesting one. I mean, as an organisation, and actually we are suppliers to a lot of the hospitality industry, we do a lot of PPE supplies, so... For those people listening, you may have heard of us. You know, if you if you wear gloves to prepare food or anything like that. But yeah, yeah so us as a business, we, we've actually got a pretty even gender split, for example. But actually, it's very skewed towards our operations side, and something we're working hard on. So we have a lot of operations people in warehouses, picking and packing, who are women, and we don't yet. We're doing okay, but we've got a lot more to do. So we don't balance that at a senior level. We are electronics and engineering distribution historically, which is a very male-dominated industry, very male, very white, very straight. And I'm very lucky to work for an organization which takes this very, very seriously and is super inclusive. You know, the fact I transitioned at work, I transitioned with my employer, they supported me all the way through. The fact that we talk about our gender pay gap, we talk about the gender balance in the workplace, has a massive impact as well the fact that we're ready to face into those things i think that for me is the difference that's the crucial difference in our approach but there's lots more to do and i I do a lot of things sort of cross industry there are some businesses that just aren't there yet they're still operating like it's 1965 you know it's it's like an episode of mad men in engineering and look there's a reality you know good humanity is good business at the end of the day and companies that you know decry this as wokism and that's that's the latest term and i i hate it beyond words you know because what's the opposite you want to be asleep you know I'd, I'd rather much rather be awake to injustice companies that abandon inclusivity and i mean genuine inclusivity are leaving opinions viewpoints you know experiences on the table they are not going to succeed they are not going to get out of the next decade because you've got to reflect the communities you serve. And I think for the hospitality industry, you know, there are two aspects to this with a particular lens on LGBT people. Firstly, very, very visible, very customer facing, very in the front line. You know, So when I look at people who are trans who are visibly queer, if you like, who are working in hospitality, they are heroes to me because they don't have an office to retreat to. They don't have a day where they can work from home and close the door and you know that's something that's that's crucial to understand i also look at people in the operations side of what i do they're in a very similar place you know they are very visible they're very public facing they are not in an environment where there is any getting away from it you know if I, i'm a vp if i decide i'm going to work from home today because i'm struggling because i hate the way i look if i feel self-conscious i can do that i can turn my camera off i can I can have that day if I'm working in one of our trade counters if I'm working on the warehouse floor I can't do that. If I'm working in hospitality I can't just do that. I can't say sorry boss you know I'm not I'm not going to be running the uh, you know the floor tonight. I'm going to go sit in the back office and I don't know check the POS system. That's not going to happen. So there's a lot to unpack in where I work but I'm also very conscious that liberation for me is no good if it isn't liberation for everyone who is like me.
1: It's a very good point, and I think that you know to bring it back to this can happen. There are some really incredible initiatives being run by some big organisations with obviously budgets and and time to commit to these sort of things, such as unlimited holiday for people. Which one of the seminars we saw that that actually ended up having a a negative impact because people were then taking less holiday. But you just think, uh, and how we try and apply this to a you know 60 odd 65 percent male dominated industry that doesn't work like that you can't just say i mean you could say perhaps i'm being just blinded perhaps i'm being blinkered you could say to hospitality professionals you can have unlimited holiday but in an industry which is experiencing like many others a staffing crisis at this moment in time and isn't able to fulfill a standard service or you know it's obligation to the customer or to the service Some of these initiatives, I I struggle to get my head around and make them applicable for the hospitality sector, and I know that it's not my job necessarily to come up with all the solutions, but as trailblazers, as leaders in this field, we want to be trying to at least navigate this somehow.
0: Yeah, it's difficult, and and again, it goes back to some of the things we've said before. There's no cookie-cutter answer. You know, this business has done X, and that's been really good for them. We can objectively look at that and say, yes, it has been. Yes, it has had a great impact, but it's not always going to be applicable. I mean, again, you, we go back to the the dark days of sort of COVID lockdowns. We talk about, you know, our business. We were very fortunate. We didn't have to take any government furlough money. We we did furlough some people, but we funded that. But we all decamped to home. I mean, I, I ended up staying in a hotel for other reasons and going into the office so I was actually making some PPE on our 3D print farm. But in hospitality, you can't just say to somebody, we can work from home today, you know, when where we're based, where our largest operations are based, which is in Corby um, in the Midlands, that was consistently one of the highest areas of COVID transmission through the lockdown period. And people were saying, oh, stupid people in Corby. So hang on a minute. Corby is one of the places which has many of the food industry factories there. So, you know, Tato Crisps are there and, you know, Rocket Salad were there. And, you know, looking at all these different organizations, you know, there's a large uh, industrial bakery there these aren't people who can work from home. You can't operate a bread oven from home. You know, you can't operate, you know, a line that's making crisps from home. So you've got people who are forced into proximity. So these things of, well, the answer was you furlough some people. The answer was you work from home. It's the same when you're talking about mental health initiatives for, for businesses. There is no, one thing that works here does not work there. And, and I think that's sometimes a danger. One of the reasons I like this can happen is because it, talks about what's happened and what's worked and what hasn't worked, but it's not giving you the answer. There's so many podcasts that, you know, somebody says, oh, you must listen to this podcast. And it's like, oh, I've got the answer for you. I'll tell you how this is going to work. And it's like, how can you do that? How can you look at your listeners and give the answer? You know, like tele- evangelists And you know, the answer is you've got to listen to your staff, you've got to listen to your customers, you've got to listen to your suppliers. And then you've got to use that beautifully unique thing, which is human, which is brain power, to pull that together and say, actually, what would work for us? And then test it, experiment. Does this work? Is this right? Is this doing all the things we need to do? And, and unfortunately, there are too many people who just like with mental health crises, they want the quick fix. They want the, they want the magic pill. And guess what? There isn't one for mental health crises, and there's not one for operating your business either. <clears throat> sadly. Mm. That's
1: one of the biggest things I'm sure you probably resonate. I'm I'm making an assumption, but uh, when dealing with multiple businesses, and we work with some great organizations and organizations that are huge, that perhaps previously haven't been known for cultural change and employee well-being and retention, but are actually throwing everything but the kitchen sink at it to make sure that this works. But then you also speak to organizations who are just like, okay but like tell us how to fix this you know and i'm like well you've got seven sites in five different counties all with unique individuals running the sites all with yes they might have the same menus and the same decor but actually different customer base different working schedules different rotors different times of being busy you know different perhaps cultures within each of those micro businesses i was like there is no one size fits all there's no quick kill you know?
0: I think it comes down to leadership and will in a business. Okay, they for me are two ingredients you can't do without if you're going to do this. Now the best example of this I can think of, so the British Army. So I, I served in the British Army. It was that was my original career, and you know I think I was probably overdoing the try to be a boy bit a little bit too much at that stage. But I, you know, I can remember going to regular commissions board in '94. And having to sit, one of the things they did there was you had to give a sort of five-minute lecture on an unprepared topic. And one of the topics was why gay people should not serve in the military. And one of the candidates gave a very florid description of why it would be awful for the military to change its criminalization and ban on gay and lesbian and bi and trans people in the military. Fast forward to now, and actually this process started in about 2003 the army is one of the most LGBT inclusive employees. It is vocal about its support for LGBT soldiers. And it's not just, you know, it's definitely not perfect and there will be issues and there will be all the things you get when you have a large organization. But from a leadership perspective, what changed the leadership and the will of the armed forces said, the world's changed and we're behind it and we're going to make it happen. And, and fighting it is unacceptable. And if you are going to be against what we're saying here, then this isn't the place for you. So it is possible. I never, if you'd asked me in 94, 95, would they ever lift the ban on LGBT people serving? I said, not in my lifetime. It will happen one day, but not in my lifetime. And here we are. We're now looking to right the wrongs. And there are ways of people looking at how we work with veterans who were affected, people who were disgraced people who are arrested people who were thrown out you know so it is possible to do but it takes leadership and it takes will and actually sometimes you got to say bigotry is bigotry bigots never like being called bigots funny that but actually you know if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck you know it's it's time to it's time to call it out and i think you know organizations need to be less worried about you're protecting bigotry and protecting everyone's opinion you've got to think about human beings that sit behind that
1: yeah as long well, as you're not, not
0: hurting somebody else
1: well so that's i think that's the key thing i mean we not to bring it up and to to go over old ground but we got called a uh, hauled over the coals about a year and a half two years ago because we wouldn't name and in shame uh, individuals within our industry who've done bad things and i'm like where does it end if we start naming and shaming people we could be here all day because our industry is certainly you know previously and historically is far from perfect i said you know our organization is designed to rally a cause for change and celebrate the you know the ones who are doing it and to encourage and inspire others and yet we still sit in, in training sessions where people are sat there with crossed arms and you could you know just by looking at them because of their lack of interaction, their just overall body language—they're going, oh, yeah, I don't believe any of this stuff. Like, and I've had conversations with people who go, if there's mental illness, they can just, you know, surely they just think more positively, and 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 that will fix it. <laughs> You're still dealing with this, and you know what? You have to pick your battles. You have to, but if you have an individual within an organisation who, especially from a CEO or from a board level, who is willing to stand up and say, actually, hold on a second. No, we haven't got this right. Don't have the answers, but let's work together on getting it. Amazing things can happen. And all of a sudden, you know, if you are in a recruitment crisis, watch those doors suddenly open and, and start to be flooded. Absolutely right.
0: Absolutely right. You know, It comes down to, at the end of the day, am I good at what I do for a job because I'm trans? No. Am I good at what I do for a job because I'm bi? No. But hiding those things makes me less good at my job. Empiric evidence, I spend less time worrying about hiding who I am, which gives me more time to worry about the stuff that I'm paid to worry about. Simple, use of, use of energy,
1: right? Use of energy. You yeah, exactly. energy. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I'm also conscious that you have a lot of work and uh, things aren't getting any quieter here. So I've got a couple of questions I just want to finish off with. I mean, as a quick fire thing, what three things would you advise – employers looking to increase their awareness improving culture or potentially improving recruitment opportunity for trans and lgbq plus community it looks like
0: so the first thing is to engage and listen to the community so widen your gaze beyond the tabloid press and the, the you know the, the things you see on social media so actually start to engage with LGBT groups, charities, when you're recruiting, you know, there are specific recruitment organizations, which really do help to improve the breadth of candidates that you can find. And Whether that be LGBTQ, whether that be people who are disabled, whether that be people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, you know, don't just go to the same pot every time and then complain you've got a recruitment crisis. Actually, go a bit broader, go to places where, in this case, the LGBT community feels safe and feel able to you know, to put themselves forward for for roles because you'll get a better level of candidate. So I definitely suggest that. I think leadership, to go back to my earlier points, question yourselves as a leadership team. Are you all in? You know, inclusivity is is exactly what it means. It is inclusive. You can't be a little bit inclusive, just like you can't be a little bit pregnant. You know, you, you either are or you aren't. And you've got to question yourselves. If you're not all in, then you're not going to make it work. If you've got pockets where people are vocal that they think it's a bad thing or it's, you know, oh, this is the end of the world, then you're always going to be in trouble because you give people a magnet for that negativity. And I think, you know, think holistically about your businesses. You know, if you're talking about people coming into work in the industry, think also about how do you treat your customers? You know, Mm -hmm. are you friendly to a diverse customer group? You know, are you... Do you make it clear by your signage? Do you make it clear by your environment? Are you, you know, you go on Google to look for somewhere to go for a meal. If I see LGBT friendly on there, that's a tick in the box. You know, if I'm going to work for you, do I see that there? So think holistically, how do you deal with your customers? How do you deal with your suppliers? You know, what's your leadership aspect? Because people who come to work for you are all of those things. Hey, people who work in hospitality sometimes go for meals themselves. Probably not as much as they might like, but, you know, they go other places. So, you know, start to think about, you know, your holistic approach to inclusion.
1: That's such an interesting thing. I've never considered advertising about that level of inclusivity. You know, you can say you're a diverse and inclusive employer, but actually specifying what you feel your strengths are with regards to that is actually an
0: incredible. Put it put it, put it, put it out there. I mean, there are schemes where you can have stickers for the window, just like you've got for other things. You know, you are, we are inclusive. You know, there are ones which are particular for the trans community, which is very useful in things like beauty treatments and salons. You know, where actually was a big question. I want to get my hair done. Is, am I going to go and be treated like crap at the salon or not? If I see the sticker, I know I am not going to be. Hey, I am going to go there. I am going to spend my money in that place. Am I gonna to want to work there? You know, if if that's my industry, if that's where I'm I'm gonna be looking, how do you treat people in that community space? So think holistically. Absolutely really important. You can't just say we're a great employer, but we're really rubbish on how we treat our customers or vice versa.
1: That's yeah.
0: I mean we're building an accreditation piece at the moment that starts
1: to celebrate businesses focused on well being. So mm. And that's multifaceted. That's not just, you know, we know from a touchy-feely perspective, you're a good employer to work for. That is psychological studies, that's benchmarking, that is policy reviews, that's risk assessments and things like stress mitigation. But I feel this is a strong subject also to be included, you know, because it does have a direct impact on well-being. So looking at policies, looking at, you know – whether or not they've documented
0: reasonable adjustments with regards to these sort of things as well, because that's, you know, key benchmarking. There are are objective measures you can use. And you you earn your colours, don't you? You earn the rights, you know, putting up a pride flag once a year says nothing to me. You know, you haven't earned those colours. But for those organisations that are working all year round for better inclusion, they should be proud to hoist the colours. I hate rainbow capitalism. But I love businesses that are inclusive and I love to share their success and I love to share how much I enjoy using their services. You know, and I I can think of a number of small, you know, take it back to hospitality, a number of small bars and restaurants which have done exactly that. They have stated where they are. And guess what? They get my money, they get my business. They, you know, and do you know what? They get everyone else's business too, because once you're inclusive of one group, one marginalized group, you know, if you're not trans, you're not LGBT, but you are, you know, in some other way considered to be marginalized or a minority or different, you're going to look at that and say, the likelihood is that's an organization that understands that. I mean, just as an aside, one of my other gay jobs, I co chair Quinn's Pride, which is the world's first rugby LGBT support associations. Yeah. Now, we've done a lot around LGBT inclusion, but one of the things we launched two weeks ago as a a club, was a pack for some autistic visitors who find it overstimulating. So to have ear defenders, to have a fidget toy for when there are those moments. This is all about an organization saying everyone is welcome here. And some of that came on the back of us saying, who is marginalized? Who's struggling to enjoy an afternoon at the rugby? You know, Who do we want to be able to open this up to? As soon as you open one door, the others open a lot easier. And, and I think a lot of businesses can look at that and say, actually, there's an intersection here that can be exploited because let's not be afraid of that word. Businesses are here to make money. We're here to, you know, to meet shareholder value or, you know, to to make profit. How do you do that? You do that by getting more customers. You do that by giving great service and all of those things come from inclusivity.
1: I love that. Yeah, what a great, what a great suggestion. I was only chatting yesterday to, um, again, those same set of friends actually about how i would met a really great, insightful gentleman during one of our training sessions who had Asperger's and he was like oh I'm, I'm sorry I've got Asperger's so I was like why are you apologizing for I was like this is an incredible strength as he was explaining from personal experience how that had an impact on his daily working life and the, in the interactions around him and there were some really really keen topics to share and so the first thing I did was jump on the phone to the engagement officers and the cultural officers and be like look You've got an individual here who can really just completely and utterly turn this entire subject matter on the head by speaking about it from personal experience. I was like, you know, you should be looking to, as you say, capitalize on this. You should be able yeah. to improve your operations and actually improve the way that you work because this gentleman, yeah. he was, he really made that session memorable. Um, yeah. 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 Say what Different,
0: difference that. is amazing. Difference is what is, yeah, it just, Gives me life to meet people who are different.
1: That's what it's about: celebrating those differences. And as a final question, then, this is something that I ask all of my guests. But if you were to travel back in time and share some advice for a younger version of yourself, something that you could change in way, and perhaps in which you viewed the world, or perhaps you know gave yourself that little spark of encouragement that may have changed your trajectory or changed your path, what sort of advice would you
0: have given to yourself? Do you know how many times I've thought this one through? I mean, I'd love to go back and tell that person, just be you now. Don't be frightened. Advocate for yourself. Push harder. Tell people who you are. Don't hide in the closet. do not Definitely don't do 36 years in the closet. I would definitely say that. I have to temper that with the environment and the world I lived in and the world we were living in at that time. But I think Don't be frightened to be authentic, I guess, is the crucial thing. It's, you know, there is only one you. I mean, you know, the old Oscar Wilde thing, you know, be yourself because everyone else is taken. It took me a long time to really appreciate that. So I think, yeah, be proud of the individuality that you have and never, ever try just to blend in with the crowd because that's just rubbish. Blending in is rubbish. I am. No matter how expedient it may feel, it's just rubbish. Yeah, it's a profound way to finish this podcast.
1: I was chatting to Vicky, our social media executive, and we were at the XL at a trade show recently. Yeah. And I park I always rush to park in the same spot and I never move my car right for three days. I'd like to think of myself as an original thinker. i certainly within the last sort of five, six years or so, I don't follow crowds. I, I go my own way. And she said to me, Why have you parked there for? I said, Well, because this is where you park and she says, Well, you do realize if you drive around the back you can park right outside the door, and there's only another five cars and like a hundred car park. And then again, I was just like, "Fucking hell, we are just so programmed to follow each other and to follow the way mm-hmm. that things are that actually you're missing out on all of this additional space as a car park or all of this additional, you know, energy that you could have if you just were authentic and you, you know, you're curious and you followed your your own path rather than just being like lemmings and feeling like we had to be confined or follow other people. It's such yeah. always every single day, every single day. You're just like, oh, why, why am I, why, why am I doing this? But it was a really, really profound way of finishing this. And I love, I absolutely loved it. And Emily, I've loved speaking to you as well. I really, really appreciate your, your experiences and your point of views. And hopefully our listeners either a knew nothing about, everything that's going on in terms of dni or who perhaps felt like they resonate with with your experiences and your journey i hope that this is useful and very much look forward to hearing how this has impacted people and, and how it's made a difference so thank you for sharing
0: this with us thank you chris i really enjoyed it too